Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Good morning, church. So, so good to see you. So good to be together. As always, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, really glad to see all your smiling faces. So one thing I love about our church is that everyone is so warm toward one another. Um, When you're here, you just feel kind of at home because everyone's so nice to each other. But what I wanted to do was actually show us a few pictures that I think has the potential to just like rip us apart. But I think we can handle it. So I think we should give it a shot. What do you think? A little nervous? I don't know. Let's see how it goes. All right, here's what I want you to do. Take a look at this picture. All right. Uh, And after I count to three, I just want you to speak out, shout out what you see, whether you see someone running toward you or you see someone running away from you. Okay. After I count to three. Ready? Take a look at this picture. All right. One, two, three. Okay. How many of you saw somebody running toward you? A handful. How many people see someone running away from you? All right, about half and half. All right, that's something you should talk to your therapist about, and let's see what that actually, what that actually means. Okay, uh, another one for you. On the count of three, you're going to shout out the word duck or bunny, depending on what you see. Ready? One, two, three. Oh, some of you guys are ready. You're like, duck, 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 duck. Anybody see a bunny? Who sees a bunny? All right, now that you're looking at it for a second, who sees both? All right, just a handful of you. All right, so this, this last one, I mean, guys... This last one, I know for a fact, has like ripped families apart. It has pit brother against brother. I've heard that like global UN negotiations broke down because of this next picture. All right. So, and some of you know this one. So you're going to take a look and you're going to tell me if this is blue and black or white and gold. All right. White and gold, some people say. Some people say blue and black. What is happening? This is mind-boggling. Am I right? It's crazy. It's crazy. I know, I know. All right, let's stop. Our, let's stop. We're going to have a whole debate about this later after service. Um, but for now, what some of these pictures do tell us, what they do reveal, is that there are things that we see differently. Am I right? There are things that uh, are not necessarily like morally right or wrong, and yet we each see them very clearly and yet very differently. Like just the way like some of us see this as this dress as being blue and black and everybody else is wrong, right? It's, it's kind of like that. So, you know, it, it, there are things that we see differently. And we're in this section of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We come back into this series Um, where he seeks to help the family of God navigate these very types of issues, where we're seeing things clearly, and yet we are seeing them differently. And Trevor did a great job last week bringing us back into chapter 10. And in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians last week, um, Paul had been talking about how Israel was given every resource and every provision through their journey from slavery into the promised land. And yet still many of them chose to seek provision from sources other than God. 
right? From, from the gods, from gods that other peoples were worshiping. And they experience the ramifications of that. And then Paul goes on to remind the Corinthians that they, in fact, have every resource available to them. And you and I, in fact, have every resource available to us. In the words of Paul, he says, God is faithful. He says, God provides a way of escape in temptation. He says, God gives us strength to endure. It's these really rich, profound promises. And so, therefore, what Paul says is, therefore, in light of this, in light of this God who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, he says, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. He, he, he says, trust in the one who has proven himself to be faithful. The one that has proven himself from generation to generation to generation to be this God who loves you and knows you and keeps his promises and is patient with you and is long-suffering with you. That you could put your trust in him. So he's saying flee from trying to find satisfaction in anything other than this God who loves you so much. So we're going to pick up right there, right where Trevor left off in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in verse 15. And as Paul encourages people to, to put their trust into this God who loves them so much, he says this. He says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. I don't know. I read that and it feels like this subtle dig. It's like, you're smart. You can figure this out, right? I speak to, sensitive, to sensible people. Uh, judge for yourself what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in that one loaf. So here's Paul. He starts all of a sudden talking about this beautiful, symbolic communion meal that we're going to actually share in together in, in just a little bit. And he talks about this idea of um, this cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks is a participation in the blood of Christ. Now that word participation is a Greek word that preachers love to talk about. It's the word koinonia. Ever heard it before? Anybody? Yeah, some of you have. A lot of times in the scriptures it's translated as the word fellowship. And it's referring to this kind of deep connection, this deep union with. And that's the reason why when we share in that meal, we call it communion. So as we partake in this meal, something is happening in our hearts where there's this union with the blood of Christ that was shed for you and for me. And his body that was broken for you and for me. And in that cup, in this end the cup, and in this loaf, in these beautiful symbols... We give ourselves over to remember and to join with Christ in his suffering. And we celebrate the oneness that we enjoy with Christ. And we celebrate the oneness that we enjoy together. That from the many, there is one. Right? So there's this, there's this kind of heart connection that is happening when we take this meal together. When we take this cup and take this bread. The focus is not on the cup itself or the loaf itself. But this connection, this thing that's happening in the heart as we take it, right? So in the same way, Paul goes on and he says, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat sacrifices participate in the altar. Do I mean then that food sacrifice to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? He says, well, no. Well, he says kind of not really, but the sacrifices 
of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to participate with demons. You see what he's getting at here? Now he's saying, okay, well, when there's this symbolic food of the day being eaten in these pagan temples of the day, that there's an act of the heart that's happening there too. There's an act of the heart that surrenders and gives itself over to these pagan gods who have no ability to show the love and the, the, the generosity and the compassion and the long-suffering that only the creator God can show. So there's something happening there too. And, and the power is not in the foods that they're eating in this pagan temple, but it's what's happening, the power is in what's happening in the heart as someone who partakes in that starts to give their heart and give their um, loyalty and emotion and spirit over to these pagan gods. And so the point that Paul's trying to make is pretty simple. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. We are trying, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So, so there it is. You, you, you see kind of the, like the simplicity of what he's getting at, right? You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. It's, it's, it's black and it's white, right? He says, you know, uh, you can lean in towards this invitation from the creator God who loves you and knows you and has always been willing to do anything for you, to sacrifice everything for you. You can, you can give yourself over to this one who invites you to, to, and sent his son for you so that the sadness and the, the sorrow and the depression and, and the shame and the guilt and death will not have the last word over you, but instead that you can come to life and be the person that you were created to be. You can go toward that, or you can go toward and give your heart toward other sources in an effort to meet the need of your heart. Money, fame, popularity, acceptance, spouse, kids. Yeah, in fact, even good things can try to fill that role. And the list goes on. But you cannot do both. Black and white. We love black and white sometimes, don't we? There's something so great about when things are nice and clean and tidy like that. But the reality is that most of our day-to-day -day life is not so black and white, is it? It's not as black and white as demons bad, God good, <laughs> right? A lot of our life lives in this little area this little gray area. One teacher that I like um, described this area as that which is morally neutral, like the color of that dress, that which is biblically ambiguous, and that which is culturally controversial. So what are some examples of gray in, in today's world? Even for us as the family of God, what are some examples of gray? I don't know, uh, maybe music. Some of us uh, may choose only to listen to music that um, is made by other Christians. And some of us might listen to all other types of music. I was going to make the joke that some of us listen to good music, but I would never make that joke. <laughs> so I guess now you know where I stand, right? Um, what about movies? What does the Bible say about Netflix? Nothing, right? Um, so do we watch movies with cussing in it? And if we do... Um, where is the line? Like, where, where do we actually figure that out? 
What about drinking? No controversy there at all, is there? Um, but, you know, if we are to drink alcohol, well, what does that mean? Beer, wine, cocktails, in private, in public, one drink or two or five? Where, how, how do we figure this out? All right, so now we're going to actually break up in small groups and just debate all of this. So, no, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. It's funny. Some of you are like, really? Yes. Others, others of you are like, oh, my goodness. Oh, no, we're not going to do that. Um, but just like today, there were two groups back in the time uh, of, uh, that Paul was writing to the Corinthians. And, and there was this kind of tug of war between these two groups. On the one hand, there was this group of people that preferred sort of the unrestricted, the, the freedom that there is in Christ. They love that gray area. And they say nothing is really black and white. And, and then there, on the other side, there was this other group that preferred the absolutes. And, and they say that they love that black and white. They love that clarity of like demons bad, God good, right? And they say nothing is gray. Everything is black and white, right? And in all of it, Paul sets out to help us see that freedom to seek the good of another is what we were created for. As he's trying to help them and us navigate how we live in the tension of that tug of war, freedom to seek the good of another is what we were created for. So, Paul starts off and he, he kind of has this conversation where he kind of talks to both of these groups of people. And he starts by talking to this group of people that seems to kind of prefer the unrestricted. They love that gray area. They say nothing is really black and, black and white. And, and this is actually, this is how Paul does it. Paul is this guy, you see this time and time and again when he's writing his, uh, in various letters that he writes to various churches. He's this guy that is just too conservative for the progressives and too progressive for the conservative. Sounds like somebody else that's written about in this book, yeah? So he starts off by talking to this group of people um, that are kind of leaning towards the gray, and he's saying that your freedom exists to be kind, that you are free to be kind. Look at what he says. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. So if, you, if some of you have been studying the Bible for a while, maybe grew up like listening to some older translations, um, there, maybe you know this verse something that says something like, all things are what? Permissible, right? I hear some of you saying it. Now, especially in those translations, I think it's so important you notice here that this is in quotes because what Paul is doing here is he is quoting something that the Corinthians have been saying. He says this like four or five times over, kind of saying, you say that all things are permissible. You say that, that I have the right to do anything. Now, he's quoting them. He is not saying, nor do the scriptures teach that anything goes, that everything is permissible. Is not what the Bible teaches. But he's saying, hey, this is what you are saying. You're saying that all things are permissible. I have the right to do anything. And he goes on to say that not everything is beneficial. Well, there's a word that we can draw a lot from. But what the word beneficial means in this context is this idea of that which is good for everyone. Jesus uses this word many times. This word is found throughout the New Testament. And it's this idea of that which is good for everyone that builds everybody up. And that's why he goes into this word constructive. That word constructive is literally the verb to build a house, to erect a building. So not everything that we do, in fact, builds, every, builds others up or is good 
for everybody. And in all of this, in that which is beneficial, in that which is constructive, is this readiness to act on behalf of another. And that right there is the essence of kindness, isn't it? It's, it's like this, this kinship. You see the word kin in the word kindness? It's this idea of this readiness to act on behalf of another. If you're driving down the street and you get a flat tire and someone comes and helps you and then you go home and you tell your family the story, what do you say? You say, I got stuck. And then some kind stranger came and he acted on my behalf. And that's what he's getting at here, that in this um, perspective of, being of doing that which is beneficial and being constructive is this act of kindness. Not that we are free to do whatever we want, but in fact, we are free from the tyranny of self. We talked about this uh, last month, I think, when I was up here with you last. We talked about how this constant desire to try to meet our own needs and satisfy ourselves, it is a never-ending endeavor. So if you make your world about you, it will never be enough. And the freedom to be kind is a freedom from that tyranny. We were created to be kind. And that's the reason why Paul says no one should seek their own good but the good of others. Put another way, freedom to seek the good of another is what we were created for. Freedom to seek the good of another is what we were created for. So Paul switches back and he says, okay, well, I think now I need to, I need to talk to, the, to this group over here that prefers the absolutes. And we're living in this tension. We're living in this, this sort of tug of war. And he's trying to help them see that we are free also to enjoy God's good favor. God's favor and his delight in you together. Look at what he says. He says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's. And everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Just a little quick background. So what's happening here, what he's talking about, is that there were these uh, sacrifices that were happening in the pagan temples. Um, an animal that was being sacrificed. But only a portion of it would actually be sacrificed. So what they would do is they would take the rest of the animal and they'd bring it to this, this market. Corinth is this thriving, growing metropolis. 100,000 people living in this place. And right in the center of town is this thriving marketplace. So they would take the leftover meat from the temple, bring it to the market, and they would sell it. And then people would take it and take it home, and they would consume it. And that's kind of what he's talking about here. And he says, there, and there were those at that time, on that side, of tug, that side of the tug of war, that were starting to live in kind of the beginnings of what would eventually become Gnosticism. It's this idea that, that all of the physical world is somehow bad and evil and that which is spiritual is good and just kind of disembodies people, humans, and our, our flesh from our, our spirit. And, and there was this sense that rejecting everything physical and going towards that which is spiritually good would somehow... Uh, advance our, our pleasure in God's sight. Um, and I think we can kind of understand that, right? We still kind of live in that, right? Like if we do the right things, if we, if we pray enough and we do these spiritual activities that somehow God is more pleased with us, and, and yet if we don't do it for a while, then God is somehow not pleased with us. And that's the reason why, I don't know, my experience sometimes is if I haven't prayed or spent time with God in a while, uh, it's hard to go back 
because I feel like he's mad at me. As if he is more pleased with me when I'm regularly praying as to, as to when I'm not. But his delight and his pleasure in you remains the same because it was paid for by someone else. And yet we tend to think that we must lean towards these spiritual activities alone, disembodied from the flesh. Now, as much as we love that black and white, Paul says that it's actually fine to eat meat from these pagan temples sold in the marketplace. And in his rationale, he quotes this rabbi's prayer that's taken from Psalm chapter 24. He says, the earth, and the the earth, um, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So you got to appreciate, like, the people listening to this, they're probably freaking out a little bit. Because they're like, wait, what? You're going to quote the prayer that the rabbis use to bless our kosher food. You're going to quote that as it relates to food that's coming from these pagan temples. They're like, mm -mm. they're not feeling great about that. But what, he's, what Paul is trying to get at is that God created everything. He's hearkening back to Genesis 1 to 3, where, where God created everything, the earth and the heavens and the earth. He created the trees and the grass and the, the beaches and the mountains and the plains and the valleys. And he created it all and he looks at it and he says it's good. And he's hearkening back to that. And he's saying that the meat is not sacred. It's just meat. It's part of God's good creation that he's created for us. And so he goes on and he assumes that these believers are finding themselves in the homes of people who don't follow Jesus yet. And he says, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. He encourages them not to assign value to that which is not evil, but it's good because God created it. And he pushes them towards the togetherness of enjoying the provision of God's good world. Ultimately, Paul is beckoning them to enjoy all of God's bountiful favor given in his world without fear of condemnation. And he's beckoning us towards the same thing. That yes, the world is not all black and white, but we can know that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so, so the gray folks on this side of the, uh, of the little tug of war right? I mean, they're thinking, oh, eat anything, drink anything. Well, yeah, it's party time, right? They're very excited about this. So Paul says, whoa, 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 I, got, I have something to say to you too. And, and so he switches and he speaks to the folks on this side of this tug of war, kind of pulling this way, to, to encourage us that, we, that our freedom is to be used to consider others, that we are free to consider others. Take a look at what he says, verse 28. He says, But if someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. Look at what he's saying here, friends. That the freedom we've been given in Christ is not for the purpose of exercising our rights above all else. That in fact our freedom was given to us to exercise it in a way that builds other people up. That our freedom was given to us to exercise it in a way that is beneficial to others. 
So we, we, we must consider when we're thinking about how do we live in that gray space, asking the question, how do my actions bring benefit to others? Or do my actions bring harm to others? We talked about this, it was a while ago now, when we were in chapter 8. Paul actually talked about this once before, and he said, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. That passage goes on like this. Just listen. It says, For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? Meaning, when they eat it, won't that person be emboldened to start to surrender their heart and their spirit to something other than the living God? And he says, So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge and by your exercising of your rights. And he's like saying, he's like, let, let it not be. Because that's not what your rights are for. We, we've somehow come to believe that our highest call as humans is to take up our own rights. That our highest call is to exercise our own rights. That our highest call is to protect our own rights. My space, my freedoms, my tax dollars, my time, my energy. But friends, the person that you were created to be is not one that holds on to their rights and, and grips them for dear life. But the person you were created to be is one who in fact gives up his rights for the benefit of others. That's what Paul's getting at here. That we are called to give up our rights for the benefit of others. That's the world we were created to live in. A human race marked by that type of generosity. And so Paul goes on and he asks these somewhat rhetorical questions. You know, uh, kind of like, how does laying down my rights bring me harm? And he's like, he's basically saying it doesn't. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in, in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? You're not. <laughs> it, 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 it's not it doesn't harm us. To, to, it doesn't harm who God says that we are and who he has made us to be when we generously lay down our rights for another. In fact, you become more of who you were created to be when you lay down your rights for another. When you say, I am going to put your good above my own. I am going to seek your benefit over my own. I am going to seek to build you up. Friends, it's who we were created to be. That's the reason why it feels good when we do it. You know, like you go and you, you help out at a soup kitchen or something and it costs you half your day and yet you go home and you feel good. And whether you follow Jesus or not, you somehow feel good. Why is that? It's because it's, it's what we were created for, friends. And that's what Paul's trying to push us towards and encourage us towards. That the freedom to seek another is what we were created for. And Paul goes on and, you know, preachers sometimes have to figure out like the application for a given passage. But this one's great because Paul's just straight up does it for you. And he wraps it up like this. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, 
but the good of many so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Look what he's saying here. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That word glory is this word that refers to like the, the renown of God, the reputation of God, that which makes his name great and that which makes his name known to, to kind of display the, the weightiness of who God is through our actions. Look at what he says. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. It's this idea to consider everyone. So as we're processing, like, how do I decide when and where and how to exercise my life in that gray area? How do I decide how to exercise this liberty? Yes, yeah, sure, I'm free to do anything um, in a sense, but how do I decide um, when and where and how and what? And he's giving us this lens. Do not cause anyone to stumble. Consider everyone because freedom should be good for all for the benefit of others. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, that word please is, is um, it's, it's actually more like serve. It's the word that's more commonly used in the scriptures referring to uh, workers and slaves and servants. It's this idea of serving others. So really he's saying, you know, even as I try to serve everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good. Hey, there it is again. Paul says, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved freedom to seek the good of many so that they may be saved so that they may know Jesus so that they may come to experience the renewal and they themselves after putting their faith in Jesus be transformed be given new hearts and new spirits and begin to live in the way that they were created to live a person marked by love and generosity and compassion toward others he welcomes them to follow him. I know it's like, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It's like, okay, Paul, <laughs> right? Um, but it's not pride. He's saying, I am trying to serve others. I am trying to put others ahead of myself. And you can follow me in that because I'm following Christ. And so it begs these questions. Paul, I think, does a masterful job. He's living in this tension between these two things, and he's trying to help us understand it and process it, and, and trying to help us think about how do we live in that gray? How do we live in that which is morally neutral and biblically ambiguous and, and culturally controversial? How do we process those decisions? And, and, he, and he gives us these things that we can kind of work through together. We'll start with this. Does the exercise of this freedom in this moment bring God renown? Does the exercise of this freedom in this moment bring glory to God? And not every, not every moment is the same. If we were to say, okay, it's okay to have a glass of wine, um, perhaps there's a difference between one setting where you have that glass of wine and you, 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 you taste the different flavors and you think about the beauty of God's creation and you think about the creativity of the person who made that wine to come up with those different notes in that recipe and, and you taste it and you look at the beauty of creation and somehow it's so meaningful to you. And yet that same glass of wine in another setting can cause someone to stumble and it can bring hardship and heartache. Not every situation is the same. 
So the question is, does the exercise of this freedom in this moment, living in that gray, does it bring renown to God? Does it build up and bring benefit to others? Is it, is it that which brings people together? Is it that which builds people up? If you look around in the room and you see those around you as like a house that is being built, well then does the exercise of this freedom, just because I can do it, does doing it in this moment, in fact, build up the people around us? Does this cultivate enjoyment of God's favor in us together? Does it bring about that joy together? You know, Paul was talking to the one group of folks saying, you know what, when you, when you are together, when you go into somebody's house, you can eat what's there without questions of conscience because there's something so good that happens in that togetherness. Is it cultivating this uh, enjoyment of God's favor in us together? Does the exercise of this freedom in this moment consider the struggles of others. Yes, I have the right to do this particular thing, but so what if it's tearing somebody else down? And what is it going to look like? This is the way that Jesus lived his entire life. Jesus lived the life that you and I were created to live, and it was a life marked by thinking of others before himself. Would we consider the struggles in, in, in processing this? And in thinking about does the exercise of this freedom in this moment, does it resemble something worth emulating? That's why Paul makes this bold statement. He's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Because I'm processing these things in our freedom, in our liberty. People think that the scriptures is mostly just a, a book of rules, and it's not. It's, it's mostly a book about a change of heart that focuses not on ourselves but focuses on others. Friends, we are in this life together. Everything about our existence screams that we were built for community. We were built for this other focusedness. To this day, right now, in this moment in time, loneliness is one of the greatest epidemics of our time. And it's ironic because we live in an age where we are theoretically more connected than ever, like super air quotes there, through social media. And yet loneliness and depression and suicide are at all-time highs. Because we were built for this other-focusedness. We were meant to, to be ones that focus on one another. That we'd be kind and that we would be enjoying God together and that we'd be considerate of one another. And as I said, Jesus' life was marked by this. And when you look at the life that Jesus lived... And you think to yourself, man, that's awesome. Always so kind and compassionate and generous. I could never live like that. And yet you can because of the power of the gospel, because of the power of the Holy Spirit in you. That's exactly what we're empowered to do. The gospel isn't just that Jesus came and he died and our sins are forgiven. It's also that Jesus rose. And that what it means that he rose is that everyone who puts their faith in him has a new heart and a new spirit inside of them. And in fact, we are empowered now to live with that other focusedness and to live in that gray in a way that says, I'm going to put your good before my own. And yet we are still going to enjoy God's goodness and his presence together. We are free. We are free. That is so true because if the son has set you free, you are free indeed. Amen. 
and we're free to become more of the other focused people that we were created to be. Let's pray together. So God, we are so grateful for the fact that you are the one that changes us from the inside out. That we are grateful for Jesus' life that just modeled for us who it is that you intend for us to be. He lived his whole life that way. And we are thankful that Jesus went to the cross, with, which really just makes sense. It's just the next act of generosity and the next act of sacrifice on behalf of us. It makes sense that he would do that. And, and we are the beneficiaries of it. We are so grateful. Thank you, God, that you are the one that gives us wisdom and strength. You provide us with every resource to be able to um, think about others before ourselves and to be able to live in that gray area and to enjoy you and to enjoy the goodness of your creation and yet still focus on others and be able to, to bring others toward you, live for their benefit, live for what is constructive because we know that when we do that, God, you are continuing to build your house. So we are so grateful that we get to be a part of your beautiful, marvelous story. And we love you and we thank you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.